Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Fiction, science fiction, horror, fantasy, crime, LGBT. You have now entered the House of Mystery with your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. FM Riverside and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the House of Mystery, and we go inside writing. And today, from the UK, uh, we have a a, a journalist, nonfiction writer, um, historian, I guess you would say it, uh, Simon Webb. Thank you for being here. Ah, It's a pleasure. Wow. So now, Simon, you um, you you kind of do a lot of research on past events um, about a lot of kind of tragic things that have happened. What 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 got you so interested in in your in in the books you wrote and why you write about them? I think because um, there's a standard view of history, which is obviously one that's agreed by people. Um, it's convenient. We, we like to have history neat and tidy and we leave bits out of it and we put other bits in and turn it into something of a mythology. And I'm always interested in what actually happened rather than what people pretend has happened. So I'm interested in looking into um, contemporary newspapers and exploring sites where things happened, that sort of thing. I like to know what really happened in the world, put it like that. Do you find it um, difficult to find the correct information? No, not these days. At one time, looking for old newspapers would mean that one might have to join a specialist library and then travel 10 or 15 miles and look at things on microfiche and uh, you know, microfilm copies of newspapers. But of course, these days, everything's on the internet. All the archives are there. So if I want to find out what happened in 1887, I can call up newspapers from the time without any difficulty just sitting here at my laptop. 
So it's immensely easy now, whereas at one time it was very complicated. Oh, I bet. Uh, how do people respond to uh, to your books? Uh, I mean, they're buying them, they like them, but is there some sort of a, a backlash at all if, if, if they feel like you've uh, changed their perspective of what really happened in a different event? Yes, people get irritated. <laughs> um, in this country, Emily Pankhurst and Christabel Pankhurst, the um, suffragette leaders, are almost like secular saints. And people don't like to be told about their foibles. They don't like to be told if they were involved in anything uh, unpleasant or violent. So, yes, pe people get a bit irritated about um, the things that I say sometimes. What do you, so of, of some of these things, I know you, you, you wrote about the Polish concentration camps. Um, how, how did you go about that? And I, I mean that in the sense of when you're researching something like anti-Jewish, um, how does it, isn't it pretty sensitive to try and research and write about and, uh, and to talk to people? <laughs> well, I suppose I'm not a particularly sensitive person. <laughs> If I'm interested in something, I will research it. And if I find something out, then I will tell people about it. So you mentioned the Polish concentration camps, which were running in Britain at one time. That's easy enough as well, because all the proceeds of the British Parliament are also online. So you can read what MPs were saying in debates in 1942 very easily. And you can match it up with newspaper reports and you can go and visit sites. So. No, I mean, it's easy enough to establish what happened, but people don't usually take the effort to do so. They'd rather just take an accepted story. And they're not, people aren't always enormously pleased to have their um, ideas overturned, as it were. Wow, I, I could imagine. So, but you're not, you're not trying to, um, you're not really trying to uh, take a group of people or, or people and make them, into the bad guy because of bringing up history. You're just bringing up history for the fact of history, right? Yes, that's absolutely right. I haven't got any axe to grind. I've certainly got nothing against Polish people or suffragettes or women or Jews or anybody else. I think we write about things and let people think what they can about it. Was there anything really surprising about the, um, the camps that you didn't realize before? Like, what was the biggest um change in, I, in in your mind for history there i was surprised to learn that so many jews were held in camps in britain that was a bit of a shock practically every prisoner i found mention of held by the uh, in the camps run by the polish government in exile they were all jews and that came as a surprise to me um you know so People sometimes say about the concentration camps in Germany and Poland, oh, everyone must have known what was going on. And yet these camps were being run in Scotland and people didn't really know what was going on. So that was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I hear that a lot, that, you know, people say you had to have known what was going on. But um, you're, you're saying it was kept pretty secret then. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You can do a lot in wartime. People, people aren't encouraged to ask questions in wartime. It's your patriotic duty not to ask questions and not to rock the boat. So, yeah, you can get away with a lot more during a world war than you can in normal circumstances. 
Wow, it's pretty. It's pretty interesting. Um, some of the things, and and what's this? You wrote 1919, Britain's Year of Revolution. Uh, that was for pen and sword as well in 2017. Um, so there was a revolution in Britain. Very nearly a revolution. Yes, the army were on the streets. Um, the rioting got so bad that the army were called in, and they bayonet charged crowds, they opened fire, they killed people. There were some terrible things going on because, of course, revolutions were breaking out all over Europe in the aftermath of the First World War. Britain wasn't any exception to the um, thing. Even Switzerland nearly saw a revolution that year. So it was, you know, it came close, but in the end, the common sense of the British uh, prevailed. Well, what was causing the riots and, and, and that kind of revolutionary thought in Britain? Because the world sometimes goes through stages. It goes through a stage where everybody wants something. Everybody's uh, carrying out a revolution. It was just one of those periods in world history. The, a lot of the British soldiers wanted to be demobbed in a hurry. You know, they wanted to be demobilized and sent home because they felt they'd done their bit fighting in the First World War. But of course, the British uh, were sending them to the north of Russia, to Archangel and Murmansk, to fight the, uh, against the Bolsheviks to try and suppress the Russian Revolution. And there was huge discontent about that. They, they had just finished fighting a world war. They just, as soon as they returned home, they were sent to Russia. So that caused a lot of ill feeling, obviously. A lot, of, a lot of it is just in 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 the mind, right? It's a lot of it's fear that. Is something going on in Russia and, and it sort of stokes what goes on in your own country? Yes, that's absolutely right. Uh, obviously, in America, the same thing happened. There was the Red Scare and the Americans were very nervous about what was happening in Russia. It was, it was just something the world had a panic, I suppose, in those uh, years after the First World War. Do, do you sort of, um, because you're a historian, how do you see today's times as compared to 1919? <laughs> You know, after, I mean, because, you know, we had the pandemic, we have one now. Um, there's been a lot of turmoil in a lot of countries, including the U.S. Um, is there comparisons or is it a totally different thing that's going on? I don't think we've got the perspective yet. It will take at least 20 or 30 years before anybody could possibly draw any parallels between what's happening now and anything else. It's not, we're, we're, because we're, we're actors, we're involved in it. You can look at the First World War and be fairly objective, but you can't look at the modern day and be objective because, of course, you're, you're a participant. I'm taking part in it. It'd be like asking an actor on the stage to review his own play. Well, it's okay. <laughs> you know, I, I do it. Um, wow. I, I, so where do you think... This, I mean, in today's time, how do you think it's going to, is it, are we handling the pandemic differently, do you think, than they did uh, over 100 years ago? I would think so, because, of course, we know now more about viruses and infections and how to treat them, how to create vaccines. So I think we're doing a better job uh, than was done in the aftermath of the First World War with the Spanish flu, certainly. Well, certainly we have it, but there, I, I, I'm sort of thinking more the mentality because um, there's a lot of people that are scared of vaccines. A lot of people, uh, there's a lot more paranoia going on right now and people that don't necessarily 
follow science as much or they're they're a little bit more um conspiratorial let's say about science that's because news spreads more quickly uh in 1918 a lot of people didn't even read newspapers you know they news traveled more slowly and people were caught up in panic the way they are now these days as soon as something happens we see it on the screen we see it on our mobile telephones we see it on the television so the, the developments happen very quickly and people get caught up in the hysteria about things. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Uh, what it, it, so when you, are you primarily studying kind of Europe and the history of Europe or do you go into other countries as well? It's more, it's Europe really, um, particularly Britain and focusing on the first 20 years of the 20th century. That's what most of my books have been about. Um, some of them, I wrote a book about slavery. My la the last book that I had come out was about slavery, the uh, trade in white slaves. But generally speaking, I, I focus on the early 20th century Europe. Wow, I didn't, I didn't realize they had a uh, slavery um, <laughs> out of the UK. There's a lot of things I don't know about the UK. Well, that's understandable. There's an awful lot I don't know about America and Canada. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, now, another thing I found is you, you've written, you, you've got a fascination with Westerns. Um, where, do, where does that come from? <laughs> that's a very interesting point because uh, people of a certain age, you know, I'm in my 60s, we grew up with television programs, Westerns, things like uh, Gunsmoke, Maverick, Bonanza, and all the rest of it, rawhide wagon train. And so there's a great interest in um, people of that age that grew up with children during the 1950s and 60s with the whole Western thing. It's gone now. The, the, occasionally a Western film will be made, but that obsessive interest in life in the Wild West isn't there anymore. So most of the books I've written, uh, I don't know, 60 or 70 Westerns, the target audience, the people that nearly always got them out, were men in their 60s. There were people that had grown up, uh, you know, seeing all those television westerns. So it, it was a common enough thing for a man of, of my age, I think. Yeah, yeah. I still watch them now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you're probably not a young demographic yourself, are you? No, I'm 59 this year. So ah, well, there you are. Yes, yeah. That's yeah it's kind of it's kind of a, a time period where you grow up with something and it's it's kind of a sentimental i guess I, I, but it's funny that um that you get in and writing stories how do you develop the stories um in a western like it's i find that curious because you're over in the uk and you write a western um because the westerns you must write must be based in the u.s they are all based in the US, yes. And it's, uh, there's a lot of prejudice in America with publishers against British authors writing about the West. There are various apocryphal stories about British authors that, you know, got things muddled up. Um, there was a man, apparently, that sent a, a novel to an American publisher, and he talked of the coyotes circling overhead and, you know, things like that. Um, it's proverbial that the British are not good at writing Westerns, that they get a lot of information muddled up. But as for the plots, you can use, uh, 
for amusement, I used to use plots from uh, classic novels, for example, Jane Eyre and War and Peace. And I would model the story set in the West on War and Peace or The Trial or something like that. So it's easy enough to transpose those stories or you could transpose a story set about, say about highwaymen in 18th century Britain. Well, you can take that story and you can tell it in the West. I'm very good at details. I, I have an awful interest in firearms and that goes down well with the readership. You know, I, mean, I know a lot about guns. So it's a, it, it, let's say that the plots are transferable from one place from one time to another. So you're doing you're doing the westerns for enjoyment for yourself more more than anything. No, 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 no. It's profit. No, no, not a bit of it. They're very profitable. Most of them go to libraries. I mean, if you were to go to a library in Canada, you would probably find um, a lot of westerns there. Um, so yeah, no, it it makes money. I, I use um, a dozen different pseudonyms. And they're all improbable names like um, Fenton Sadler and Brent Larson, <laughs> things like that. A lot of women write these westerns, and then they call themselves dramatic names like Tex Larrigan. If you found any book, if you were to go on Amazon and look for books by Tex Larrigan, it's really a woman woman called Gillian Forsyth. So I mean, it's a it, it, it's a little way of making a, a part time income, put it like that. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand that. But so you use the pseudonym. Why you do? Do you just use the fake name for a, a more of um, the feeling of the book, and it fits the book better if it's like a Brent Lawson? No, no. I'll, t- I'll tell you what it is. Um, I was writing so many at one time that I was having two or three in the month come out, and it doesn't look too good. Libraries won't buy more than. Uh, two books by the same author each year. They don't like doing it, so it puts them off. And since most of these books ended up being sold to libraries, I had to vary the uh, name a little bit so that if I had three books out in a month, it wouldn't look as though they were all by me. Oh, that's very interesting. I didn't realise that. Oh, yes. There's a lot of things like that. It's the same thing with romances. There's a big market for 18th century romances, you know, and romances set in the Regency period. And it's exactly the same. There's a few people with a dozen different names writing those novels. Wow. What do you think of the publishing world now, today? It's changed so much, you know, with Amazon and and self-publishing and stuff. How How do you feel about it? It's a great improvement. I don't have to parcel up a manuscript now. I, I type the thing and then, of course, I send it off by email as an attachment. In the old days, you'd have to type something out and then you would end up with a paper manuscript and have to post it. And if something happened to it, you were in terrible trouble because that was it. <laughs> the, no, honestly, it was terrible business, but nobody bothers these days with manuscripts. Nothing is done until the thing is ready to be printed. So, yeah, you know, it's an improvement. Yeah, it's sure, it certainly changed. Crazy, crazy world. And um, wow. So do you think people really understand how how we lived as a population back in the 1800s or early 1900s? Do you think they really understand what London was really like? No, not at all. 
No, I, I don't think that, that we do because we, the only information we have is from educated or middle class people. If you think about 19th century London, your image of it, your idea, my idea too comes to that, is of characters uh, chiefly from, say, uh, Dickens. We think of London as populated by people like the Arthur Dodger and uh, Bill Sykes. These, it, our images come from novels written by educated and um, middle-class people. There's no authentic working-class voice from that time, so we've no idea at all what working-class or ordinary labouring people were thinking or doing. How, it, well, how do you how do you how do you research? How do you find out that then? That's an exceedingly good point. Again, some of it comes down to newspaper reports. If you read newspapers, you can pick up, um, say, court reports. All the trials from the Old Bailey from before the First World War, going back to the 18th century, transcripts are all uh, online. So you can go onto the Old Bailey website and everything is there. And so you can read the actual statements that people made, statements that defendants made. And that gives you a taste of flavour of language, of the vocabulary, and of the constructions used, and also reading through a court case of a murder or a robbery in, say, 1850, will give you an insight into life in those times because you're reading it in the people's own words. Again, it's something which we've only recently been able to do. Yeah, I think I think it's quite different. I think um, people have they try to put today's thoughts on how police deal with crime or different events. Um, and they transpose it back to 1900. Uh, but it, they, they handle things totally different. That's absolutely right, yeah. But, I mean, we all look at the past through particular spectacles of our own construction. None of us are really objective when we're looking at history. It's why there's no such thing as... This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. An objective book of history, because we all, all have our own ideas. Even writing, when you write a novel or you write a history book, you can't put everything in that happened in 1900. The process of selecting the facts that you're going to use and the people you're going to focus at, automatically you're you're censoring, you're putting your own views into that book. Hmm. I wonder, so when you pick a subject that you're going to write about, what usually leads you to that, like choosing something like that? I have various interests. I have an interest in crime. I have an interest in terrorism. Um, and I've got an interest in politics. So those are topics that I will tend to look at more than others. And they're also things that I know a great deal about already. And um, if I'm writing about London, I live on the outskirts of London. So if I'm writing about a terrorist attack, there there were a lot of terrorist attacks in London uh, in the 19th century, before the First World War. I, because I live so close to London, I can go and visit the sites for myself. And, you know, by reading the newspaper accounts and reading the um, accounts of the transcripts of the trial, I can visit the scenes of these crimes and reconstruct them. I was going to say that would be really hard. No, it's really enjoyable. Oh, okay. <laughs> but I, it's just, uh, so when you're dealing with terrorism, um, how was it dealt with in the Victorian and Edwardian Britain? Um, how was it done, dealt with compared to how it is now? In a lot more direct way. I mean, murderers, if, if someone was killed, if someone set a bomb off, which kills people, then they were hanged. Um, and if the police were chasing someone who was armed, they usually ended up shooting the person. And these days we try to be a little bit more delicate about doing things. Uh, the last person hanged in Britain was hanged for a terrorist attack in London, uh, a bomb attack, quarter of a tonne of gunpowder was set off, which killed 15 people. And he was um, tried and hanged for it. But you see, I mean, I've written about that at some length, that particular case, because it's really s- simple. If you go to the site of the bomb attack, you can still see some of the buildings that are there. You can still see some of the damage that was caused to brickwork. And that's what I say. It's very interesting retracing the footsteps of um, crimes like that. Do you ever try to get into the mind of someone like that? Someone that actually uh, terrorizes and kills a lot of people that they don't even know? Well, in a sense, I can understand it. I, I've had experience of terrorism, I, you know, in Northern Ireland, uh, during the early 1970s. I lived in the Middle East for a long time. I've seen terrorism at first hand, and 
I suppose I can understand the motivation for somebody planting a bomb or, or carrying out an assassination. So yeah, I, I can certainly get into their, their frame of mind. Huh. I just, I, I, wow. And I guess there's been a lot of cases of, of terrorism with, with in the UK over the years. Yeah, an awful lot. Is it usually politically motivated? It's, terrorism is almost by definition politically motivated. There's been a few cases of extortion which have um, verged on terrorism, but terrorism in itself, you know, if you're talking about doing something that was frightening people tremendously, that has to have a political motivation, political or religious. Wow. Now, so when you cover the story, how is it, how is it that you can do it that, um, well, I guess you can't really, you have to put some of yourself into it, don't you? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. But again, that's where visiting the site where something happens can help. Because you can imagine if you if you go to the place where some of the buildings are still standing and walk the streets, you can, can sometimes get a feel for what it must have been like. Um, there was a terrorist attack of a murder of three police officers in 1910 in London um, by uh, Russian exiles who were anarchists. You know, they were terrorists, but some of the streets where they lived are still there. And you can actually walk along those streets and they're still exactly as they were 100 years ago. And you can certainly get a feel for a neighborhood by doing that. Hmm. You know, so when someone picks up one of your books, are they, um, is, there, is there some sort of a, a, a meaning or some, some subtext or something that you want them to take home? after they've read the book? Not, not overtly. I'd like them to think about the thing. I'd like people to read the books to find out for themselves. Uh, I hope that after um, a couple of my books in particular, Life in Roman London, um, I give a series of uh, self-guided walks at the back of the book. There are three walks. So I encourage people not to take my word for things, but to go and look for themselves to go and visit the sites, to, to go and see the places that I talk about and think for themselves. And I also usually advise if I give sources for information. So I tell people how they can access uh, court transcripts or the uh, records of the British Parliament. So I, I hope that those books will uh, uh, encourage people to find out about things for themselves. How long does it take you to put together one of these um, books? Uh, covering uh, an event or a historical um, <laughs> tragedy? I, I tend to I write very, very quickly. I have three books that I'm writing at the moment, three um, non-fiction books and a couple of novels as well. I, I, I work very, very fast. Um, there, there was a time recently when I was writing seven novels a year and three non-fiction books being published by several different publishers. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't like to say how many words a year I turn out. <laughs> An awful lot. Well, I think I'm the same. I write a lot of books per year, but uh, but I'm thinking the research part of it. Uh, when you go to these places and spend time, uh, does that take most of your time then? No, not really. No. Because no. I can write when I'm on a trade, say. So, I mean, where I am now, there's um, the... London underground trains run through everywhere in London from here. So I can, on the journey down there, I can write. 
while I'm there, I can make notes and start putting sentences together, you know, in my head as I'm walking about, and then actually start writing things while I'm on the train back. You know, I mean, you say you, I didn't know that you wrote books as well. You, in that case, you probably understand that sometimes you find yourself composing sentences or putting things together in your head when you're not writing. Yeah. you see what yeah. I mean. Oh, so yeah. I, I will often sort of practice sentences or when I'm walking about, I will sketch things out in my mind. So when I actually do the writing, I, I, it comes off fairly quickly. Huh. I, I just, I, do certain things influence you or certain areas um, help you write better? No, not really. Writing for me, I mean, I don't, I don't want, I'm trying to think how I can put this. I have friends that are novelists and they get stuck for ages and they agonize over things. To me, writing is a job. It's like being a carpenter or a plumber. You know, if, if you're a carpenter, you can turn out a chair or you could make a table. It's a job. Writing to me is a job. I could just as easily write a book of history. If somebody wanted me to write a book about biology, I'm sure I could do that. Or if it was a romance, I can do that as well. Those skills, being able to put sentences together coherently, is something that I do and always have done. So it's not, I'm not sure to what extent I see this as a creative process. I, I suppose I, I see myself more as an artisan of the written word. <laughs> Mm. No, I agree. I, I have the same sort of feelings. I just I don't hear that from too many writers. I, I speak to writers, you know, five days a week for 10 years now, and I don't usually get that kind of an answer. It's usually more of a, you know, um, it's, it sounds a lot more elegant than that. <laughs> yes, the reason is that it spoils the illusion if people talk plainly about it. You know, um, people that are in a profession, whether they're if you go and take your car to a garage and ask the mechanic to fix it, he will make out that it's a very complicated process. You'll use all sorts of jargon so you won't understand what he's saying. And because to him it's a craft, it's his livelihood, so he wants to make it hard to understand. Electricians do the same. All, all trades do this. It's the same with writing. People make it sound complex. People make it sound difficult because it's their livelihood. Do you see, um, I don't know if you see what I'm driving at here. Yeah, I don't yeah. see writing being a particularly difficult trade. I, I do it a lot easier than I could, say, fix the plumbing in my house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but it sounds good if you... <laughs> it sounds much better if you say that you're struggling over a creative block or something, yeah. Well, that's, uh, so so this last this pandemic thing and the lockdown and all the all the different stresses that that's brought on over the last year. Did that affect your writing at all then? No, not in slightest. No, 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 because I spend most of it when I'm writing, I'm sitting at a laptop in my house. It's not, you know, no, it hasn't affected me in the least. I can still travel. I can still go and see things. The archives are still on the Internet, the newspapers and so on. No, I mean, no, it hasn't really. A lot of writers tend to be introverts anyway. A lot of writers tend to be people that are happier with words and books than they are with people. So oh, I'm not yeah. really, a, I'm not a people person. I'm a book person more. So no, it hasn't really affected me. 
Yeah, I understand that. It's just, it's funny because the majority, I'd say a good 70, 80% of the people I've talked to in the last year, it's all caused some sort of a stress or drama or something and affected their writing and their mental state while they're writing and stuff. So it's just, it's, it's funny to kind of get the opposite point of view where someone like you just go, oh, no, it's still good. It's, it's, it's my job. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, if you make it sound like a real struggle and, and, and how hard it is, it's, it, you know, it'll garner more respect, right? Yes. I don't think I'm going to garner respect for knocking out 70 Westerns, seriously. No, well, you know, but I do, I do a lot of those. I do tons of the true crime short read books for couple of publishers one mainly yeah, yeah and you know they, they they bring in i cannot believe how much money they bring in yeah. and how many people buy them but they're not really anything i labor over i just kind yeah. of do them like you say it's just like it reminds me of school reports for when yeah. i was a kid yeah. i i just do them and i don't think about them and they're not bad it's just i'm surprised and and uh but some but people take this they make it into a big a big illusion, a big event that it's, it's all this stuff, you know, that's all, I guess, get carried away, you know. That is true. True yeah. crime is quite fun. I used to write a lot for the True Detective magazines, you know, True Detective, Master Detective. I don't, you have them in America too, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I used to do a lot of stuff for them at one time, writing you know, about murders. Yeah. Oh, and there's just so much so much going on and there's such an influx people are so into crime right now that um yeah it's it's a it's a good thing i i, I it's kind of strange and and of course i guess writing true crime doesn't affect you at all either right no no not at all. <laughs> oh i i understand it totally it's um you know do you know you never you, so you didn't write about jack the ripper Jack the Ripper is something I'm half planning on doing a book about in the future. But no, no, this this was just a little known murder cases. They're, they're, in this country, there's five magazines a month uh, that publish true crime uh, stories, but they're all short pieces. They're all sort of just short articles in these magazines. Yeah, well, you know, people don't have much of an attention span. I have the attention span of goldfish at the moment. Yeah, so <laughs> the short—that's why the short ones do well because I don't think people want to invest too much time or work into something. Everybody's quick and go. I guess that's the whole, you know, smartphones and internet and all that. Everybody's very yes. You know, everyone's flashing through everything like it's. Uh, so, so, do you have any inspirations? Like, do you have any influences that that somehow get into your writing? Do you think? Yes, from the books that I read, obviously, I, I read a lot. Um, you can't really construct sentences unless you're an a, a avid reader, unless you're familiar with how it works. Uh, to me, that's all been acquired through my own reading because I read, I'm, you know, I'm a great Dickens fan. Um, so by reading other people's books, you get a feel for what is a good sentence, you know, I'm not even sure it's something you can teach. It's not something that you'll find particularly in textbooks. Um, things like the rhythm of language, you know, using a short sentence and then a long sentence and two short sentences, you know, breaking up the rhythm, breaking up the pattern. There are things like that that you, you'll see if you read good literature. 
And once you pick that up, that's also transferable whether you're writing nonfiction or fiction. Yeah, there's certain skills you learn, um, but you acquire them through reading and doing it, being part of it. Yeah. So who are your favorite authors? Dickens. <laughs> do, well, but do you, think, do you think we have anything comparable to that now? Do you think there's writers that exist today that are writing or just recently that you feel are in that, in that, at that level of writing? I don't really read much that's been published later than about 1965, to be honest. <laughs> why, why do you think that is? Because I'm old. <laughs> old never, yeah, but, yeah, but old people cannot usually catch new things so easily, can they? If I read a modern novel, um, I'm trying to remember, I read a novel called The Road. I don't know if you've heard, you probably have heard, but it's made into a film with Vigo Mortensen, post-apocalyptic thriller. But there was no punctuation in parts of it, no quotation marks for people speaking. And I read the whole novel, and it was very highly regarded, but it didn't strike me as a particularly, it seemed gimmicky to me compared with um, fiction published, say, 50 or 60 years ago. So you think the um, actual writing skills or qualities gone down in, in, in this new generation? No, that, again, that's something that old people will always say. That's right. I've been saying that for years. No, I think they've changed. I don't know. I don't think they've gone down. I'm sure that people were saying that, well, in fact, I know they were. People said this about Dickens, that, you know, his, his way of writing was a deterioration compared to Daniel Defoe. No, they haven't gone down. They, they've changed. Hmm. That's an interesting way of looking at it. Um, people always look at things better or worse, right, rather than just change. Hmm. Yes, but um, Ecclesiastes said in the Bible, you know, two and a half thousand years ago, don't ask why things are so much worse today than they used to be. It's not an intelligent question. People have always been saying this. People be, through the whole of recorded history, old people have said that things are all going to hell and that, you know, that society is not as good and art is worse than it used to be. It's not true. It's, it's just how it happens. It changes. And the older you are, the more difficult it comes to be to accept change or to appreciate that. So you're, so you're saying I'm, I'm old because I don't like new stuff? <laughs> That's that's, a, <laughs> that's the first sign. Uh, the first no, sign. no, no. It, it, it's a, you must admit that there's a difference in generations. Young oh, yeah. people will embrace new things and new ideas very readily, more readily perhaps than people in their 50s, 60s and 70s will. Oh, for sure. I, I see that. I, I, I pick that out in myself all the time where something will come along and it'll be like, oh, Why? I, I think because you do so much change throughout your life, maybe you get tired of it. Yep, I think that's absolutely true. You know, new systems to learn and stuff, you know. So so what are you working on now? You've got how many books? <laughs> I've got three books I'm working on at the moment. Uh, one of them is a book on race and ethnicity. Um, that's for an American is paying me to do that. A man who has a foundation in Seattle, actually. Mm. He's a, an American philanthropist. And he contacted me and uh, commissioned this book. So that's one of them. 
Another is a book on magic um, about wizards and the origins of fairies and so on. And then there's one about slavery in Africa. Hmm. So race, uh, racism is going to be a continued problem with us, isn't it? Humans. Yeah, I can't see that problem going away in a hurry. Yeah, it's too bad. Um, wow. So now, now you have a website people can come find out about you. What what kind of things you write and and where you can be found? Uh, yep. What's your what's your website? Simon Dash Web Simon Web dot com. Fantastic. So we're going to put that up as well, so people that listen to the show can find you if they ever need to, or if they have something Ooh. for you, um, you know. And uh, we'll go from there. Well, certainly uh, interesting to talk to someone that's so. So skilled at writing. <laughs> um, well, I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Our guest has been Simon Webb. Thank you for being here. Thanks a lot. All right. Cheerio now. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.